Welcome to episode 60 of the Contra Fabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. 60. We've done 60 of these. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm so... I, I really, really... I hate to say I, I did not expect the podcast to stick when we started. Well, I thought about it earlier today. I thought, you know, we could quit. We could quit now. No. We're not. It, it's it's stuck now. There's no getting rid of we pressed, it. We pressed the record button, so we won't quit today. Correct. Um, so what are we what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? Well, uh, I think um, we could probably start each week's podcast with a little run through of what uh, Donald J. Trump, um, the 45th president of the United States, has most recently tweeted. Um, since that's the fine, the, this fine overlap of technology and politics, um, I actually have him blocked on Twitter. Um, but so I did have to sort of do the little workaround so that I could look at his tweets so that we could talk about a series of tweets that he, um, let loose, uh, I guess 11 hours ago. So I want to, I want to point out that this is being done via Twitter. Like this, our world is is coming apart at the seams and and it's thanks being Jack <laughs> yeah exactly good thing Jack's woke um, yeah <laughs> yeah no it is it is, is very interesting that this particular White House seems um, seems or this particular president I should say does not hold press seem to hold press conferences um, press do not get invited to um, to some of the the meetings and events. Uh, I think he goes out of his way to sort of leave the gaggle behind, to abuse them, to put them in a little special fenced-off area at certain events. Um, the press secretary, you know, says sort of bald-faced lies to to the two journalists. But instead, he's decided to use um, social media, which he claims makes him a very modern uh, a modern president uh, to communicate with. Which is, uh, you know, okay, sure, what, whatever, dude. But he, he, the things that he says are, um, well, they're unscripted. Yeah, well, in particular this week, he's um, traveling around in Europe at the G20 summit and other places. I think it's the G19 now. <laughs> I don't think they're going to let us back. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. They're, they're kind of... Uh, Doing all the deals around us, as we saw from one picture this week. But the particular one that I focused in on is, here's the tweet, uh, word for word. Putin and I discussed forming an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that the election hacking and many other negative things will be guarded. And, and safe. Uh, oh, he yes, continues. And Guarded and safe. Questions were asked about why the CIA and FBI had to ask the DNC 13 times for their caps lock server and were rejected. Still don't. Next tweet. Have it. Fake news said 17 intel agencies, actually four, had to apologize. Why did Obama do caps lock? Nothing when he had info before the election. But yeah, this impenetrable cybersecurity unit. Uh, caught caught your eye. What is an impenetrable cybersecurity unit that we would want run with Russia? 
Well, I mean, there's the obvious parts around, you know, so the election hacking, something he's denied is has even happened until he it was something he could blame Obama for. But just just purely if you've ever run a, a server firewall and had to look at the logs as far as where your threats are coming from, Russia is 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 a big threat, you know, when it comes to just general online uh defensibility. And and then we saw through this election that 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 just really got got amplified, and one key tool in that amplification is the Twitter API. So it's I think it's very fitting that he's he's you know telling this story on Twitter using Twitter, but much of the you know the the instability of the platform is due to bots you know amplifying him, but also you know coming at you know a lot of our other infrastructure. Um, kind of amplifying how things are exposed, how things are shared, and kind of escalating, you know, what is possible with cy- cybersecurity. So it's not just technical. It's also a storytelling. It's the the speed of, of which, you know, Twitter can spread this information and share it. Um, it's it's just disturbing. Uh, one of, um, I, one of, I think, um, my, I don't know, favorite, one of my favorite writers about technology is Adrian Chen. Um, he did a, wrote a really interesting story and it's been a couple of years now. I'll put it in the show notes, the link to it, um, in which he went to Russia to meet, um, Russian trolls. I mean, and this is, you know, this was well before we sort of, well before the election had taken, you know, I mean, I think we're always campaigning in the U S but it was well before, um, sort of Russian ties to Trump um, started to, to come out well before we knew of Russia's, the government's interest in um, in um, messing with the elections. But the story really talks about culturally and then technically how Russia is really, um, has huge groups of people. Um, and not this is not, again, this is not this sort of stereotype of a, teenage boy in the basement of his parents' house um, doing uh, mean thi- saying mean things on the internet. This is really a coordinated business um, or, uh, of, of people who, who are really set on wreaking havoc um, across, across, the, across the internet. Um, and so this, is, this isn't simply you know one or two, bad apples. This is really an orchestrated effort. Um, not entirely, not all of it entirely by the Kremlin, but um, if you're familiar with the way in which things work in Russia, um, it's not not organized, or it's not it's not not sanctioned by the, by the Kremlin. So yeah, the, I mean, so the idea, so yeah, the idea of, of partnering with with Russia on an impenetrable cybersecurity unit is flawed on so many levels, like you said. This notion of of impenetrability is not true. So I don't think Trump, I mean, clearly Trump has no idea what he's talking about, that we would work with Russia, who's who's clearly spent the last, you know, couple of years at least, but probably longer working very hard to infiltrate and compromise the, the internet, uh, compromise institutions in this country, 
um, is is wild. Um, and that this is, you know, we've talked a little bit about this before, that the future of war may well be cyber, more cyber than actual um, what we've thought of for the last, you know, 100 years as, uh, or, or longer as conventional warfare. And so the idea that, that, um, that we would that, uh, that we would, with anybody, with any other country really, except our closest allies, um, participate in this kind of joint military, like this is a joint military effort. Why would we be engaging in a joint military effort of this nature with, with Russia? Yeah, I don't, I mean, pretty much you can, you can close your eyes and think about anybody, any country in the world, any state actor in the world that we potentially could go to war with or have kind of a rocky relationship with, those are the same people, you know, um, posing a cyber threat. You know, they're North Korea, they're China, it's Russia. These are the places. So it's, it's Syria, just, right? Like this. Yeah, yeah, Syria, yeah. you know, Iran. These are the places that, you know, so, you know, cyber, cyber warfare is definitely kind of creeping in through all channels and and propaganda and and how you tell these stories or don't tell these stories twitter is very much an active player in that facebook is is very much an active player in that and so i i can't even find a historical analogy of 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 what he's doing as far as being ignorant of you know willfully ignorant of of this happening during the election and then him you know then Encur you, actually encouraging it to happen. I and mean, actually he did encouraging stand up, it. He did stand up in front of an audience and say, Russia should hack Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And, and then, you know, encouraging people and then shifting when it suits him so he can blame Obama. And then, you know, all the ass kissing he's done for, with Russia and denying his, his friendly relationship that he would, he would go that so quickly with, you know, with this and then the real part that that concerns me is all his followers are like oh it's all just you know deep state it's all fake news it's like no this is like our national infrastructure when we're talking about what russia's right. coming Wasn't after there news this week that that russian hackers or purportedly i mean i guess it's it's hard to know who in some ways it's hard to it's hard to know who who does who is up to these things but weren't like weren't the nuclear wasn't like a nuclear Power plant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean there was a, a a wind farm one. They it wasn't breached. It was shown. It was vulnerable. Vulnerable. So yeah, nuclear. Um, you know they're coming after our energy infrastructure. They're coming after healthcare. I have a whole section where I track all the breaches that have occurred, and I would say you know a good third of them have some sort of telltale sign of being you know basically the the Russians messing with stuff, and so the. To say something like that, that we're going to create an impenetrable cybersecurity unit with these people and that people somehow are going to, like, think this is valid. I mean, even even luckily, you know, Republicans and people are, like, kind of speaking up and saying, um, WTF, what's going on here? You know, this is not, not sensible. But um, that I just, I mean, he's off his rocker. Um, and this is definitely not even remotely in the direction we should be going to actually truly shoring up our our cybersecurity defenses taking care of our banking our health care our you know our energy basic actual you know def defensive position on what we should be doing we're not having that transparent open conversation and we're dealing with this 
Well, so this is, I mean, I think what we want to spend a lot of the time talking about in this episode is less, less about Trump, but, but, you know, um, regardless of, regardless of these, these statements that he, that he makes about, you know, working, working with the Russians for an, I can't, I just can't get over that phrase, an impenetrable cyber security unit. Um, but the, the, the vulnerability of our infrastructure, I mean, and it's not just the U.S.'s infrastructure, but I think this is a global problem, the vulnerability of our infrastructure to these sort of security breaches, but also the paths that we've taken in the past, you know, with the advent of the computer in order to, uh, that we have outsourced the expertise we've actually outsourced in mo- in a lot of cases the operation of this particular technolo- technical piece of our infrastructure right so we have a couple of stories one of them is from this week one of them's i think a couple of weeks old about um cities who have who have sort of handed over the really like some fundamental pieces of their um of of their um organiz- of their sort of sit of the city's um organization to third party companies and what happens. Yeah, the one uh story that I kinda highlighted was about uh cities who had, you know, dealing with their troubled uh, water infrastructure to provide fresh water uh, for their citizens. And there's certain rules and regulations that, you know, cities have to meet and, and when doing that. And to offload the headache, they've, they've outsourced the operation, the ownership, and uh, of their water systems to these, these private companies. And, and the most disturbing part is there's actually kind of a, a, an organized effort in passing legislation that um, it really focuses on, on helping uh, cities privatize this infra- infrastructure as well as um, making it very difficult when they want to like get it back from from uh, cities and some of these cities had had basically sold their water rights and when um, prices started going to sold their the water roof, rights or sold their water management um, I think in some cases it's both I think it's it's sometimes it's because there's a lot of um, selling of water rights right now at at many different levels, but I think this they you know sell sell the the, the rights the management it may not be rights it may be access because some of these uh, the water is coming out of like the rivers and and streams and stuff like that so they have the the primary access to it but then as premiums start going up and and people have to pay more to get their water you know not all of the the problems are going away just because things were privatized and then so when people complain you know it's like hey not only is our water still uh got contaminants and issues and things going on with it our prices are going through the roof as well and when courts step in it's proven very costly for cities to get back um this this management and the operation of it and so i see water you know, it's 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 one of my favorite resources, to be honest. I really enjoy having good access to good water. I'm a fan of it. But I see it alongside other public assets and resources that are valuable and are essential. Uh, and and private groups really like convincing cities that they need to outsource it. And in some cases, they're um, 
they're signing over ownership of this and this is everything from physical resources to energy um and and subway and transportation and transit systems and water um all the way to more digital aspects of what they're doing and and collect you know this is human services this is collection of of restaurant inspection data this is just many of the things that the the valuable things that cities do um and the data generated around it you know policing um healthcare all of this and because these things are being outsourced um these cities are signing over ownership away and sometimes this means signing over our private data um i've come across situations where cities in order to get a a, a lower cost on a piece of software that they had to sign over ownership of public data and this is public data on you and me on our addresses our location our water, our energy usage, our trash, different things. And now these companies actually own access to this. And I've tried to get APIs opened up around this, and they they won't do it because they want to be able to control the access and the flow of this so they can charge those those subscription rates and sell it to other commercial entities. So this is a problem beyond just water. So the... Um... The story that caught my eye a couple weeks ago, and again, this is you know this is about city services being um, being outsourced to companies, which I think is a larger trend. I mean, we talk a lot. I talk a lot about um, the way in which this happens with tech, you know, with technology companies. But this is part of a larger trend of neoliberalism, right? Where we, with the attempt, this attempt to sort of shrink the government and privatize as many of uh, as many public services as possible right so you you see this um, you see this in the UK for example with taking the you know the state-run um, train system and parceling it out to uh, to for for-profit companies but you see this internally even with within services that remain quote-unquote public um, that because of technology, a lot of these a lot of these things get do get um, do get outsourced, and the contracts that come with them are a bit like you know we they talk we've talked before about the terms of service, but and you would think that with the legal you know with the legal expertise in a city that people would be going through these things and not sign signing these onerous contracts, but um, alas, when it's something I don't know when it comes to technology. Um, that really doesn't seem to be the case. So there was a story in BuzzFeed a couple of weeks ago about um, New York City Police Department, which had a contract, or the city had a contract with Palantir, um, the data surveillance analysis company um, co-founded by Peter Thiel, that Palantir would run some of the um, investigative surveillance data-driven um, management for the city. Um, I think that they, the, according to this uh, story, that their contract was uh, like $3.5 million a year. New York opted not to renew the contract, um, but the data, but, but Palantir's not giving them the data. Yeah, I mean, I've... Uh... Right, so this is, you know, this is city data, right? This is not, this is not Palantir, or, or you would think that this is not Palantir's data, um, but Palantir has yet to provide them with um, with the data back in a format that could be used in another 
in another piece of software. I mean, so there's two, two problems there. One is not giving it back, period. And then one is give, not giving it back in a format that can be, that's interoperable. Well, there's a, there's a lot of argument in the space around, in the technology space around, you know, if this, this data wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the software platform. So your Facebook data would not exist if it wasn't for Mark Zuckerberg. So do you really own your data if it wouldn't exist without Mark Zuckerberg? Um, well, which you, part of that data? You know, I mean, yeah, sure. And, and so the, this is, I hear this a lot from people when I talk about opening up with, you know, APIs and, and I write fictional but and sometimes jokingly about APIs being kind of an invasive species it's how you map out what you're about to attack or assault and the notion that some a company like Palantir can provide a piece of software to a city and say hey we're going to help you do this thing you're already doing but because you're able to do it way better and way easier with our software um, you're going to be much more efficient. So sign this contract and and do it. And oh, hey, we got a little clause in there that that you own your data and you can get it out when you're done. Um, it's just a one liner. It's not very you know spe specific. And then when you hit the end of that contract, and you're like, oh yeah, we're done. Um, we want our data back and we want things back the way they were. You know that looks like well, it's just business as usual. And Palantir can be like, hey, yeah, you know we're. Um, we're just offering a product or service here, but you put it in a really interesting way last week when you said, well, that's just ransomware. Um, and I would say it's just a more slow-moving version of ransomware because now you're um, beholden to Palantir, and what's happening is they're having to sue them to get their data back and to get access at it. But even when a company does that, and we've seen this a lot of times, is that company can give you data portability, meaning you can get your data out, but it's in an unusable way. So there's many layers in which a company can can plan, uh, you know, invade and attack your your agency, your organization, your small town, and get you kind of, um, you know, this ransomware installed across your your organization. This and is you flashbacks have to of Evernote for me, which I yeah, moved exactly. off of a couple of years ago, and you know they, you know, I'd never really thought about it. They say that you can m export all of your notes and you can except it's in like the jankiest html which what well, you're not going to ever like what are you going to do with that like yeah i still have i still have that because some of those i turned into blog posts programmatically and then when I try to publish it to Jekyll, it won't accept it because there's like all these weird characters. So it's not just the jankiness that you see. It's like the, the dark matter of janky, janky code and formatting that's in there. And so there's many ways. And, and some of this isn't overt. Some of this is just incompetency. You know, these, these platforms are offering you a software solution and they just don't operate very well. And they don't really obviously care about you know, making the systems that give you your data portability or your API or your way of getting things out very advanced because they want to, you know, they want to reduce their friction onboarding and they want all the friction in there when you're looking to get out of there. And it's, and sadly, some of these are just basically held hostage. I mean, that water discussion, it's not, you know, software, it's the privatization, but it's definitely, you know, uh, very much overlaps with the technical. I think the technical motives and the, and the capitalist motives for privatizing a city infrastructure, whether it's physical resources like water or digital resources like policing data, um, 
you can come in, get your hooks in, and then they can't get rid of you. You have this data, you have access to this, and they basically have, you have to go to court and pay a ransom to uh, get you know get things back to the way they were. Yeah, and then I mean, I would say you know I think that schools schools have experience schools experience this quite often, like when they make a shift from a different to a different learning management system, and so you know of course these. Uh, the the large industry players have got together and come up with quote unquote standards um, for their th for the data to live in right so in the case of the LMS it's the common cartridge so that you can export you know export the data out of Blackboard for example and move it into uh, Canvas um, but what but because these kinds of quote unquote standards are often made with people sitting around the table who, who still have a vested interest in the in the world working out a certain way to the benefit of their companies it's you know it gets like the kinds of things that appear in these standards the ways in which these standards and um these data formats get created still i think benefit the incumbent player and so although you could move from say blackboard to canvas um, you can't move from Blackboard to WordPress, right? Because that you know this is all about keeping you within the learning management system um, trap. <laughs> well, and it's it's so it's it's a technical and it's a it's a business way of creating this friction. So you 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 can't. Um, you know, customers can't walk away, and this creates a whole new world where you're able to charge what you want because you have a certain level of control. And this is what, um, you know, this is what Silicon Valley wants to invade and 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 take on with every mobile app installation, with every API that's mapped out. You know, they're mapping out how they're going to to invade education, invade healthcare. And, and take on these and I, and you know I, I say this you know just highlighting that there are good things going on as well there are people who, who are do, using these same approaches and same tools to to create interesting apps and do interesting things but the problem is alongside of it is is these other ways of, of, of technically invading but then setting up business models that are like oh it's it's the gig economy everyone's everyone's winning and and things are open and 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 transparent people can see each side and then you realize no that's actually not the case there's a lot more going on and all all the scales are always tipped towards the platform these are like casinos you know it's always in favor of the house and they have this 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 uber level pun intended view of what's going on and they're able to ratchet down the screws and and the cities you know back down to the municipal level the cities can't keep up with this you know um, whether it's it's for human services or it's policing or it's transit um, they just can't keep up with the technical and things are you know things are moving so fast technically it keeps them off their feet it keeps them kind of off their guard and when these terms of service are put in front of um, people this happens in the public space. We don't read those things. We just sign them. It's happening in, in, in the business and, and, and municipal and other levels of government and school districts. As you said, people are signing terms of service without, you know, thinking critically about what's going on. They, um, so I don't think that things are necessarily moving faster than ever. I, but I do think that, that most of us, no matter the role we're in, have not really built our capacity to make smart consumer 
decisions, I should say smart purchasing decisions, um, adoption decisions when it comes to new technologies. And I mean this like, you know, on a personal level, thinking really critically about why you're going to use a new piece of technology, you know, um, dump a bunch of your personal data into it, come to rely on it, um, and as well as, as well as professionally, um, you know, if you're in a, if you're in the position to be able to make these kinds of decisions for your, for your organization, for your city, for your school, for your company, whatever, um, you know, who, how are you being influenced to, to adopt, uh, how are you being influenced to adopt certain, certain technologies? And I just don't know, I don't think that people, I mean, I, you know, I find myself, I consider myself fairly, uh, I'm not, I'm not particularly technical, but um, I consider myself fairly critical. And I still find, you know, that I, I find it really easy to like look at a tool and start thinking about other oh, ways in which I'd use it and then find yourself really stuck using a particular, well, a particular, there's many, you know. There's many subtle ways. I mean, beyond just the, the, the lock-in that we just, I just talked about, there's many other subtle ways that the language is used to, to kind of influence you down a certain road so you can't get out. And one, you know, I mean, just think about, you know, what you hear across the landscape right now, big data. Okay. So big data, load your big data in the system. It's like, all right, well, now, you, you know, it's not very easy getting that big data out. You know, it's like they're encouraging you to have more, collect more, do more, that this is going to be valuable. You, know, you need more data because the AI has got to have big data to be able to make intelligent decision, actually reach that intelligence level. And they're telling you this and you're so, OK, yeah, I got to get on board. But, I, you know, I know I just recently migrated off my entire back end database, which was MySQL. And I deleted it, and and what allowed me to do that is because I had my data in small enough chunks. I mean, I still had a lot of bloat and growth, but because I, I got it down to very manageable chunks, and I've actually migrated it all to CSVs and spreadsheets and using Google Sheets. Um, now I'm using hundreds of smaller spreadsheets um, that drive my research on my websites rather than one big back-end MySQL database. I still have a smaller um Amazon Aurora database, which is MySQL compliant, but it's a new one. It's got like four or five small databases that I need to to run some APIs, but the majority of mine run in this new way that, that you've adopted as well. But if you don't have it in small manageable chunks, um, getting it from platform to platform becomes impossible, and that's part of what they want. They want you in that position. Yeah, so uh, I guess we're almost up against time. I w we could talk real briefly about that process, although having me having spent uh, what feels like the majority of my day banging my head against the wall, um, <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand computers. Uh, yeah, you're doing fine. You're moving forward with it. She, um, I think we have enough time. I think we got a, a minute or two. Just maybe we can open it up for next week. But um, you're you've been setting up uh, Google spreadsheets um, with all your funding and research data in preparation for the school year at Columbia and your fellowship there. Uh, you're taking all what you've been doing for the last six seven years, collecting of all this funding data. And you're organizing it into neat little, you know, simple spreadsheets, trying to keep the number of rows down uh, to a minimum amount, you know, uh, around a thousand or less if possible. And then 
I'm working with you to publish this data to GitHub repos and basically just a little simple little script that you can run. You can set up a GitHub repo, point uh, the script at the spreadsheet and it'll take the spreadsheet and publish it there as YAML. And then you're, what you're banging your head on right now is how you use what's called Liquid, which is a part of Jekyll to a language for working with this YAML data and how you can tell stories with that. And that's kind of where we're at now. We got a lot, a lot more work to do as far as, um, you know, more liquid to help you, you know, take this data and kind of coherently tell stories with it. But also how do we, um, you know, make visualizations and, and give you a whole wealth of other tools that even I don't, you know, know how to do yet. So it's, it's an interesting exploration. I think we'll be talking about it more in well, future podcasts. To, um, to back up a bit, one of the, I mean, this comes back a bit to um, why I decided to do this. I, have, I haven't been tracking on the funding data for that long. I've only been doing it, this is the third year. Um, although I relied on other investment analyst firms, when, particularly when I would write my year in review about all of the funding that had occurred over the course of the past 12 months in EdTech, I always had to get the data from someone else, um, which was very frustrating because when you get the data from someone else, you tend to get it in something like a PDF or perhaps they, if you would say, if you send them an email and say, please, um, I'm writing a story, can you tell me who, who, which companies raise the most money, they'll send you a list, um, but you don't actually get the data. Um, and if you do want more ability to look at the data, it's, it's really, um, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, partially because this is, you know, this is a service that these firms provide for investors and investors have really deep pockets to spend on this kind of stuff. And so for me, I felt it was really important to make this data more readily available to educators and to decision makers in education because it's like it's important to it's important to sort of be able to see the patterns in the funding. It's important to know who's funding these things, right? Like, I would want to know um, what companies Peter Thiel was funding, and if I was an educator, I would make sure that my school did not use anything um, that he had that he was a a, a stakeholder in. Uh, that's that would be a, li a, a line I wouldn't cross. These men that these men that uh, have been accused of uh, investors that have been accused of sexually harassing female entrepreneurs. I would also make sure that I wasn't um, that no one would be using you, no one would be using those products. Right. So I want that data to be available. I've been tracking on it, putting it in spreadsheets for a while now, um, and but I and I've been publishing. Uh, each month, I up, you know, I keep this all these spreadsheets updated. I I publish my analysis, and then I just put a JSON file that contains sort of really a JSON file that's a uh, that's sort of like the CSV uh, convert converted into JSON, so that if someone wanted to do something with it, they could still see they could, sort of I'm still showing my work. Um, but I wanted to take it to the next level so that I could more easily, um, like you say, more easily do visualizations, but just have it displayed, have a sort of human level, a human readable display as well as the data readable display, right? So the YAML file um, 
which I think, some, what does it mean? It, something ain't markup language. I can't remember. YAML ain't markup language or something. Um, but it's a, it's a loosely structured data format, right? So it's a, it's a way for me to um, do data-driven work without having to take on a database. Or, and to be able, so I use a spreadsheet to generate, um, to, to create the YAML file. The YAML file works as a database of sorts to, um, for my work. So I can do sort of data-driven data -driven projects that way. Um, and it's just super frustrating, though, um, because partially for the, you know, my lack of technical expertise, but also just, it's just a reminder of um, <laughs> these, these sort of, I don't know, like the little things that, like I couldn't get something to work today, and um, my, you know, my GitHub pages wouldn't wouldn't build. Um, something was wrong with my code. It took me forever to find out what was wrong, and it turns out what was wrong was that you know in my list of investors, I had surnames, mostly surnames that had accents on them, right? So Jorgensen, for example, Munez. Uh, uh, accents on, you know, accents on vowels from, from various languages, um, Nordic romance languages and romance languages. But the, the encoding, um, somewhere along the way, the encoding was not reading that. It was just choking on it. And it, like, so I was, you know, it was irritating because it took me a long time to find, find all of the words that had accents on them. But then it was also really annoying because... I really hate it that English, uh, a language that is by and large sort of accent-free unless we've borrowed a word from another language, but even then we tend to drop the accents, right? Nobody puts the accent on the end of a resume, of the word resume, unless you're, or consomme, right? Unless you're particularly um, conversant in foreign languages, but the fact that pro the main, the major programming language of the world is English, um, and the the what an it just reminds me of how imperialist this whole computing process is. I mean, it matters. Like accents on accents on letters matter. Like the 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 nor you know, the Norwegians don't have accents on their vowels just to sort of screw with you. Like, it, <laughs> it matters. Yeah, well... The direction that the accent on an E goes, it matters. And not having an accent on a, on a vowel or on a, on a consonant matters. And so I was just, you know, thinking, um, it just, yeah. So, like, that, that like, I was double frustrated because programming is incredibly frustrating and I honestly don't know how people do it because it just makes me want to lose my mind but then just being reminded like here I am working with this data set demonstrating the global reach of investment in education technology and I can't I can't represent people's names correctly because programmers are are white dudes from who speak English by and large so, I mean, the, I want to clarify, the problem is in moving from Google Spreadsheet into GitHub Jekyll 
and there's well, the somewhere. I mean, the problem could be elsewhere too. The problem could be copying and pasting, right? So when I find a company that's got funding, I go to Crunchbase or I read about it in EdSurge, and I copy that, you know, Control V, Control C, Control V into my spreadsheet, right? And then so like the 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 places in which that happens could be several fold. The f fact that I couldn't do any searches in Google spreadsheets to find um, an accent aigu today uh, without it like thinking that every letter somehow was that character. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm saying... Pull your shit together, Google. You're not hating on storing data in small chunks out in the open. No, is what I, no, what, no. What, I, what I'm, I'm trying I'm to say. Hating. No, not at all. It's so great. The, I love it. I just wanted... <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to clarify the problem is in moving data from one platform to another yeah. and an example of how people lock you in. Yeah, the problem exactly. is the problem is not with is not that you're you're hating storing your data in small chunks. No, um, no, no, and, no. Actually, and, and, it's, it's outside be of great. a database. No, it's. I mean, and actually, the, this is you know, I I say this I say this fairly frequently. For me. One of the most liberating things that um, I, that you've ever helped me do um, technically is to be able to get off of WordPress or off of your custom-built content management system and to be able to run my websites using Jekyll, right? So I find using Jekyll, which is primarily you know static HTML pages, to be really easy. I'm partially because I'm I'm quite adept at, at HTML. I, I, um, and the little bit of sort of more programmatic stuff I have to do isn't terribly tough. And the way in which these files are, the way in which YAML works to add a layer and to add to sort of, to make these data driven is, makes a lot of sense to me and is definitely better than spending any time learning something like MySQL. So that's great, and I, I feel like once I sort of get it, um, it's, it's, again, going to be really great for me because I'm not going to have to ask for IT here at the Contrafabulist company to help me set up a database, to help me set up a website, to help me make changes because I can do it myself. Um, I'm just saying that in the meantime, while I'm trying to figure it out and get it to work, that this little thing with the accents really like pisses me off because it broke my stuff, but then it pisses me off because now that I've taken out the accents, I've broken people's names. Yeah, it's a. I agree. It's definitely a problem. I just didn't want to scare off people from from this new approach that that I hope we'll be talking about more. Yeah, we will. We I think we we will talk about it more. Um, and I I won't make any negative comments about it. Um, this problem is not not with that. This problem is definitely. Oh, let's blame Google. Uh, I mean, why not? Yeah. Well, we'll uh, hopefully we'll check in each week because I think. For me, it's it's how I run my world, and and it's and watching you how um, kind of set up your your time at Columbia in this way, I think it's going to yield a lot of great stories. So. Great. Well, then, till next week. Until next week. <laughs>